Thank you so much. It is my privilege to be here. I want to say a special thank you to Pastors Robinson and Daniels uh, for inviting me uh, to speak. I am delighted, and it is my privilege to preach the Word anywhere at any time. Would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. You know, it's interesting. I was considering preaching uh, from Matthew chapter 19. And as I sought the Lord about it, I, having read some of Brother Swigert's articles, I thought, you know, he's probably going to deal with that. And through prayer, the Lord led me away from that passage and uh, to this one. So I'm now glad in hindsight, but the Lord has foresight as well as hindsight. And so we're delighted that he has led to Hebrews 2. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12 to start. And we'll go down through verse 18 eventually, but Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 12. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. I remember when I first came to understand what this passage is teaching I was stunned, and yet I was delighted. Right up front in the message, I want to give you the thesis of this passage and therefore of my sermon this morning because it's, well, it could be a bit complicated just depending on where you're coming from. Here's the thesis. Jesus is leading many sons to glory. These are, I believe, the firstborn sons who will co-reign with him. They are made perfect by enduring their sufferings as Christ endured his sufferings. However, as the firstborn sons are made perfect, so Christ is made perfect through their sufferings. Now, that may puzzle you a bit, particularly the last sentence. You may be wondering, how can Christ be made perfect through the sufferings of others? But if you'll bear with me and give me an opportunity to explain this and the word perfect, I think you will find the answer to that question most beautiful. Indeed, it's, it's stunning to behold. And so I've titled the message this morning very simply, Sons Unto Glory. I have three points, simple points, to the message. The first point, Jesus is leading many sons to glory. Now that raises two questions, in my mind anyway. Who are these sons, and where is Jesus leading them? Well, let's start with that first question, who are these sons? Now, if we were to force a particular theological grid onto this passage, we might tend to conclude that these sons are all saints, That is, everyone who has ever been saved from eternal condemnation. But I believe that's not correct. Because in verse number 11, we're told that he is not ashamed to call these sons brethren. Yet we know in Luke 9.26, Jesus warned, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me 
And of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So there's something different about these sons. The group is not comprised of all who are sons of God. Rather, these many sons are a subset of all sons. I take the position that these are the firstborn sons who are worthy of inheritance. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that for you from the text as we go along. Now, in order to develop the concept of two classes of sons in the scriptures, uh, let us go to a couple of different passages. So will you bear with me this morning as we let our fingers do the walking through the scriptures? And let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Keep a bookmark here in Hebrews, if you would. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at a couple of verses here first, and then we'll go to Romans next. Matthew 5, and look at verse number 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now this passage, of course, is part of the Beatitudes, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, is not to teach lost people how to become saved. It's to teach saved people how to become prepared for the kingdom. I could spend an entire sermon on that point, and many of you could as well. But for the sake of time, I simply want to point this out. If Jesus were teaching how to be saved from eternal condemnation here in this text, then he would be teaching salvation by works. For do we not see merit in verse number 9? Look at it again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Those who make peace will be considered children, the word is elsewhere translated sons of God. So if your tendency, and I doubt that there are any at this conference who would have this tendency, but if your tendency is to gospelize the Sermon on the Mount, then you would surely consider this soteriological. But then to wiggle out of the conundrum of work salvation, you would have to impose a theological grid onto the text such as the Calvinist doctrine of perseverance unto salvation. That's what many do with this text. Of course, we disagree with that hermeneutic. The point is that Jesus is not talking about matters of soteriology, but rather matters of sanctification, specifically pertaining to ruling in his kingdom and preparing for that. Interestingly, here Jesus does not use the Greek word uh, technon, he uses the word huios. If you know your Greek, technon is the word used for sons in general. But it is never used to refer to mature firstborn sons. For example, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons, the technon, of God. 1 John 3 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons, the technon of God. But here in Matthew 5 9, Jesus doesn't use the Greek word technon. He uses the Greek word huios. 
Now, that doesn't automatically mean that it's referring to sons who are given an inheritance, but because of the context, we can determine that this Greek word is used in that way. The same is true over in verse 44. Would you turn over in the same chapter, verses 44 and 45? But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, verse 45, that ye may be the children, the huias, of your Father which is in heaven. The huias. Loving enemies is not how one gets saved. But it is how one qualifies, at least in part, to inherit the kingdom. Let's go now to Romans chapter 8, where both of these Greek words are used in contradistinction. And this helps us. Romans chapter 8, and look at verse number 16. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. The word children or sons here in verse number 16 and again in verse number 17 is technon. Verse 16 is true of all saints. Look at it again. The Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are the technon, the children, the sons of God. And it's also true, the first part of verse 17, if children, then heirs. If technon, then heirs. We are all heirs of God. We are all, as children of God, uh, inheritors of, possessors of eternal life. In the sense of the gift of eternal life. So verse 16 is true of all saints, and so is the beginning of verse 17. However, as we're going to see... Paul is making an obvious contrast here between all sons, which we just looked at, and those sons who have gone on to maturity. Now look at verse 14. Here's the contrast. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Different Greek word for sons, it's huias. These are those who are maturing. The Greek scholar Henry Alford says, and I quote, Huias of God differs from technon of God in implying the higher and more mature and conscious member of God's family. End quote. Those who are being led of the Spirit, they are walking in the Spirit, we might say. They are filled with the Spirit. They are mature sons of God. Now I want to park there for just a moment and ask you, are you merely a technon of God, or would he consider you a huias, a mature child of mine, God might say of you, who is walking in the Spirit. You know, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To the extent that you are sinning, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, to the extent you're walking in the Spirit, you're not sinning. Because the Spirit does not produce works of the flesh. He produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and so on. i got to tell you, our problem is we don't walk in the Spirit consistently. But when we do, oh, what a joy. And we have the provision to walk in the Spirit. 
He is the Holy Spirit who enables us. He's the Spirit of Christ who enables us to walk in Him, to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Those who are being led of the Spirit are those who are walking in the Spirit, and Paul here says they are mature sons of God. And according to verse number 15, they are the ones who have received the Spirit of adoption and can cry, Abba, Father, a term of endearment. Look at verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Interestingly, and in support of this position that I am proposing uh, about huias, is the fact that adoption is huiathesia in the Greek. That's the status of an adult son who receives the inheritance. So plainly put, this is a firstborn son. And it applies to those, only those, who are being led of the Spirit. Now, if you are not being led of the Spirit, it could not be said of you that you are we us. For you are flesh controlled. And so it is imperative, if we want to be rewarded at the judgment seat, that we walk in the Spirit. That our God might consider us, we us, mature sons. If Paul intended this to apply to all saints, then he surely would have used the word technon throughout the entire passage. But he did not. He chose two Greek words and he did it for a purpose. Paul is using huios in order to make a distinction in this context. I think we would all agree that not all saints walk in the Spirit. In fact, I know those of you who are pastors, uh, and I'm a pastor, we could all say, unfortunately, we know of people who are saved people who do not walk in the Spirit. They walk according to the flesh. And so they're not huias of God. They are not mature saints who are preparing to rule with Jesus as firstborn sons. They're merely technon, sons of God by way of legal standing. So let's drop back and consider what we've talked about here, since we understand that Paul is making a clear distinction between mature sons versus all sons, sons in general. We then can understand his point that he's going to be making now in verse 17b and following. Look at the middle of verse 17. We are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons, we us, of God. Do you know, we become joint heirs with Christ only to the extent that we suffer with him. It's not automatic for all born-again believers. It's conditional only for those who meet the condition. Again, what is the condition? It's there for us in verse 14. Being led of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Now look at the glorious result for those who remain as huias, mature sons. Verse number 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of which shall be revealed in us. 
the glory that shall be revealed in those mature sons who are deemed as such at the judgment seat of Christ. Of course, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 says it this way, If we suffer, and the word means endure, we shall also reign with him. Those who endure in their sufferings will be gloriously rewarded. They will hear well done at the judgment seat. They will be revealed as rulers at the judgment seat. And all creation, whether it realizes it or not, is looking forward to awaiting that glorious day. Look at verse 19 again. For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God. Do you know the entirety of creation is moving in that direction? It's exciting. That is the ultimate way that God is glorified. You say God is glorified in the salvation of individuals. Of course. But he's ultimately glorified. If it stops just with the salvation of individuals, that's not enough. He is ultimately glorified when individuals are saved and discipled and become mature so that they can be revealed at the judgment seat as worthy of ruling with him in his kingdom. That's the manifestation of these huias of God. All creation is awaiting that day. Jesus alone is worthy of the reward, and he will share it with others. Indeed, Jesus wants to be the firstborn among many brethren. Look at verse number 29 in Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus wants many huias to rule with him. Now before we return to our primary text in Hebrews, I want you first to go with me to one other usage of huias, which is an obvious one in its context, and that's in Revelation 21. Would you turn there, please? And look at verse number 7. We're in Revelation 21 and verse 7. This is a promise for overcomers. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my, what's the word? Huias, son, mature son, worthy of ruling with me. This is a promise for those who overcome. They go all the way in discipleship, we might say. Now, it should not surprise us then, as we go back to our original text, would you turn to Hebrews 2? It should not surprise us that the Greek word translated sons in Hebrews 2.10 is huias. And it is being used in the same manner as we've just discussed. The context here dictates it. So look with me at verse number 10 once again. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory. Obviously, not all saints are on the pathway to becoming mature sons. That's unfortunate. They're not going all the way in discipleship with Jesus. Maybe another way of putting it, they are saving their soul here and now for self and will therefore lose it at the judgment seat in the sense of losing their reward. And so we can conclude that Hebrews 2.10 is not speaking of all saints, It's referring to the subset 
of Technon, who are huios, mature saints. They are the ones, verse 11, who are submitted to his progressive sanctification work in their lives. Look at verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now I should point out that the phrase, they who are sanctified, because of the tense of the verb in the Greek, should literally read, those who are being sanctified. It's not referring to, therefore, positional sanctification, which we all received when we got saved. It's referring to ongoing progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. So here's how it reads. For both he that sanctifieth and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Those saints who are being sanctified are qualifying to become firstborn sons. That's sons under glory, if they continue on that path. Unfortunately, not all believers are on that path, and perhaps not all will continue on that path. And the problem is, those who are not on that path are not working out their salvation. That is the salvation of their soul as God is working in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, may I put it this way, they're not cooperating with God. And so therefore they're not being sanctified. And so Hebrews 2 and verse 10 does not apply to them. They are not being led as sons unto glory. And so we have answered our first question. Who are these sons? Well, they are not all born-again believers. They are only the subset who are going on to maturity. Now to the second question. We're still on the first point, but the second question, where is Jesus leading them? Well, verse 10 tells us he's leading them unto glory. Firstborn sons are being led unto glory for the purpose of reigning. Now, if you look there in the text, Hebrews 2 and verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. If God has not given authority in the coming age to angels, then to whom has he given it? Well, look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus is the one who will have authority to rule in that coming age. Now, we don't have the time to examine this in detail, but this entire context, in fact, fact, chapters 1, 2, and following chapters are all pointing to Jesus as being the one who's worthy to rule. But here's an exciting thought, and this made my heart rejoice when I caught it. Jesus wants to share his authority to rule with co-regents, mature, firstborn sons, whom he deems worthy to rule with him. So the question is, are you preparing to rule with him? Now, folks, glory only comes from God. In its most literal sense, glory is brightness. Consider the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus shined in all his glory. The disciples that day who were there got a glimpse of the millennial Jesus, the ruling Jesus, the glorified Jesus. 
But think of Jesus in the eternal state, shining so brightly that there is no need of the sun. That's glory. And we're told in the scriptures, glory is awarded to faithful saints at the judgment seat. And it will result in their shining to some degree. There will be varying degrees. And I believe they will shine eternally. Now, we don't have the time to go into it, but according to 1 Corinthians 15, we find there are variances of light and glory and shining in that realm to come. But there's more. It seems that the white robes that represent the righteous acts of the saints, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, are equated with this glory, or they're part of the glory. So here's a marvelous thought. Adam, I believe, was clothed with glory, with brightness before the fall. When he sinned, he lost his clothing of brightness. He lost his glory, and so he was naked and ashamed. Thus, God had to kill animals and clothe him with the skins of those animals. But when Jesus won the victory over death at Calvary by shedding his blood and rising again from the grave, he was glorified by the Father. And in his coming kingdom, he will be encased in brightness. And that is prefigured for us in the transfiguration. But here's the exciting thought. Not only will Jesus be encased in brightness, so will the mature sons that he brings unto glory. They will be in brightness to some degree, granted not as bright as Jesus. What is glory? Well, again, it's brightness, clothing of brightness that faithful saints will receive in some degree. And it has some connection with rulership. What a disappointment. Think now. What a disappointment it will be for those saints who are not clothed in brightness. And what a tragedy for those saints who won't shine with any brightness. They will be there, yet so as by fire, but perhaps they will find themselves in the darkness outside. Thus, we've answered our first question, who are these sons? And we've answered our second question, unto what are they being led? And it's glorious. Now we have a third question. How is Jesus leading them? That brings me to the second point of the message, if you're taking notes. Sons are made perfect through suffering. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 again in our text, Hebrews 2. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Let me stop there. We need to clarify several terms in the text. First, the word salvation mentioned in verse 10, I believe is soul salvation, not initial salvation of one spirit from eternal condemnation. It's referring to sanctification under reward, or we could say perseverance under reward. Incidentally, that's also the case in chapter 1 and verse 14. If you look back there briefly, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation, soul salvation? Chapter 2 and verse number 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, soul salvation? And then again in verse 10. 
He is being made, or he is, I should say, the captain of their salvation, their soul salvation. So the first term that we've defined is salvation. Does not refer to initial salvation of one's spirit from eternal condemnation, but the salvation of one's soul at the judgment seat under reward. The second term or word we need to define is perfect. You know, in our culture, we use the word perfect differently than the scripture does. We tend to say, well, I'm not perfect. And by that, we tend to mean, I am not flawless. I am not without sin. But that's not how the scripture uses the word. To make perfect does not mean that the person becomes sinless. Perfection in the New Testament is not a justification term. It is a sanctification term. And it means to reach the goal of sanctification, which is conformity to Christ. If you had to become without sin in order to rule with Christ, you wouldn't rule with Christ because none of us will become without sin this side of eternity. However, if perfection means going all the way in discipleship to the goal of sanctification that Christ has for you, then we can attain that goal through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The Greek word for perfect means to complete or to accomplish. It's akin, it's very similar to the Greek word that Jesus used when he was on the cross of Calvary and he cried out, It is finished! In other words, my task has been fulfilled. I have completed the work. In the sense of progressive sanctification, it's the idea of a believer going all the way in discipleship so that he or she hears, well done, good and faithful servant, at the judgment seat. That's perfection, not sinlessness, going all the way in discipleship to the goal that Christ has set for you. It's important to understand that. Thirdly, the word captain in our verse is the idea of one who is over others. It could literally translate chief or even prince. So we could say the prince of our salvation is not merely referring to Jesus who died for the sins of mankind. In this context, it's referring to Jesus who is leading sons unto glory so that they can one day rule together with him in his kingdom. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory in the words of Romans 8, 29, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The fourth term I want to clarify is the word sanctify. And of course, it's the most obvious to us probably. It means to set apart or to make holy. Now, I think we would all agree that Jesus himself has been made perfect in one sense through his own sufferings. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Don't miss this. Jesus, as a man has been perfected. He fulfilled the Father's will. He endured his sufferings. 
And now He is leading sons to glory by helping us to endure our sufferings. Now, why is suffering so important? That's the difficult part, isn't it? Well, turn over a couple of pages with me to Hebrews chapter 5. I marveled when I studied these verses. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation, that soul salvation, unto all them that obey him. And to that, excuse the colloquial English, but wow, (laughs) what a powerful verse. Jesus learned obedience. Through suffering. Now, don't misunderstand. This does not mean that he once sinned and he learned to stop sinning by suffering. Perish the thought. Jesus was without sin. We know that. But what it means is, and this is important to us, he learned full compliance and submission to the Father's will in his suffering. And so do we, verse 9. And being made perfect, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Could I put it this way? He is the causer. I looked it up in the dictionary. It's a valid word. He is the causer of soul salvation. That is for those who will learn obedience in their sufferings, as he learned obedience in his sufferings. Now go with me over a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 12. And this tells us practically what we are to do to put us in that frame of mind. And it talks about our captain. Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, it says, is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the prince. He is the completer. He is bringing us, those sons that he's leading to glory, unto eternal salvation. Notice the phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, I pondered that a while. What was the joy that was set before him? In my very strong opinion, it certainly wasn't the cross itself and bearing the sins of the whole world. The joy that was set before him was the hope of reclaiming the kingdom and regaining the rule over earth as the second Adam. Glory, hallelujah. The joy before him was and is bringing many sons unto glory. That's the joy that was set before him. That's why he went to the cross of Calvary ultimately. I think of the parable. You don't need to turn, but in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. When it was accounting time before the master, the faithful ones heard these words. And I love these words. I long to hear these words someday at his judgment bar. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And then he says this, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Isn't that marvelous? That's the joy that was set before him. The joy of declaring many sons who can rule with him in his kingdom. That's the ultimate purpose for which we were created. Christ's joy is our joy too. It's the prospect of becoming a son in the glory if we endure our sufferings. And by the way, folks, let's get practical. That's why we're told to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. That's why we're told to look unto Jesus as we are running the race. That's why we're told to consider him that endured the cross. He endured his sufferings and then sat down at the right hand of God as the victor. Why? Because we too need to endure our sufferings with his enablement and then sit down next to him on an actual throne in the world to come. Hmm, Glory. (laughs) We're told in Hebrews 12 and verse 3, to consider him enduring his sufferings so that we don't get weary amidst our sufferings. And then he goes right into a discussion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he goes right into a discussion here about chastening, child training. Seems out of place, doesn't it? <laughs> not at all. See, we're instructed to endure our chastening, knowing that it's producing in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Suffering's important. And by the way, I should put this caveat in. By suffering, I certainly don't mean merely getting persecuted, though that is one type of suffering that you might bear. But every day, you're called upon to deny self, take up your cross, and follow Him. You know, there's suffering in that. Deprivations that come from obedience. Things you do without, because you're focused not on the things of the world, but on the things above. Certainly enduring your trials and temptations with the power of Christ upon you, that's enduring suffering. And as you do, you grow in grace. You become perfect in sanctification. Now again, that doesn't mean sinless, but it means you arrive at the goal he wants you to get to. And incidentally, we never know if we've arrived at the goal until we meet him at the judgment seat. So let us never get haughty. Think I've arrived. Paul said, I've not, I've not arrived. That's why he said, I keep pressing toward the mark. Remember, God said to Paul that his strength is made perfect. There's our word perfect again. In our weakness. So don't chafe at your sufferings. Receive them with joyfulnesses of the Lord. In thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for letting me suffer for you in whatever way. I want to be worthy to rule with you. Now listen to Philippians 3, 10 through 12. You don't need to turn for sake of time. Ah, oh, Paul gave this heart cry. I can, I can just imagine Paul crying this. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship, the participation in his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. See, Paul knew that he hadn't arrived. He said, I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Folks, knowing him and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings is what this is all about. How? By enduring your sufferings. And in so doing, you will learn obedience and you will draw closer in your fellowship to him. In other words, suffering perfects the saint, the mere technon, into a huias, a mature son. You're made perfect through suffering. What a beautiful thought. You know, we as humans tend to think just the opposite. I hate suffering, right? We're going to chafe. We're going to duck and run from suffering. We're going to wiggle our way out of it. Do anything we can to get out of the suffering. No, God says, endure it with a Christ-like spirit. He's enabled you to do that. Now, go back to Hebrews 2, just a few pages back, so we can see a few of the benefits of fellowshipping in his sufferings. Now, folks, if you thought it was glorious so far in the text, it's going to get more glorious. I'm going to give you three benefits. Benefit number one. Look at verse number 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are being sanctified are all of one. Hey, that's a benefit. Oneness with Christ. When you endure your sufferings as Jesus endured his sufferings, you become one with him. Glory. John 17, 23, don't turn, but Jesus, in that endearing prayer to his Father, said, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. The idea of abiding in the vine. In verse 22 of that passage, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, excuse the colloquial, but wow! It's incredible. You see the importance of identifying with Christ in your sufferings? It's critical. Benefit number two. Look at Hebrews 2.11 once again. The latter half of the verse, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. (laughs) For those who are being sanctified, for those who are being made perfect by enduring their sufferings, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. We know he's ashamed to call unfaithful children brethren. In verses 12 and 13 here, The writer to the Hebrews quotes from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah chapter 8 to make the point that Jesus exalts, E-X-U-L-T-S, in his faithful ones. He is proud of them and he declares their name as firstborn. In other words, there's an amazing camaraderie between the firstborn or amongst the firstborn with Jesus. They are one. They are spiritually on the same page. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Now, folks, think of it. If you are enduring your suffering and being made perfect through your sufferings, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brethren, and at the judgment seat, he's going to do something like this. I don't know if I have the details right, but something like this. He's going to say, children of God, I want you to meet so-and-so, 
who has endured his sufferings along with me. He is one with me or she is one with me. This one will rule with me. They have been led unto glory. Oh, I want to hear that. I know you do as well. But you know, there is the prospect of hearing something else. Because according to Mark 8 and verse 38, we're told, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's talking about the judgment seat. There is the possibility for a saint, a child of God, to not be declared by Jesus a son unto glory, but rather for Jesus to be ashamed. Second Timothy 2, we read it earlier. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, or if we're faithless, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Yes, they're saved, yet so as by fire. However, they're not declared glorious. Now, I want you to look at benefit number three. And to see this benefit, I need to read verses 14 through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the, the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath, hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help them that are tempted. Here's the grand idea. Remember, this is addressed to saints, and it culminates in verse 18. Because Jesus has endured his sufferings and temptations, he is able to succor, he is able to help those who are being tested, those who are in the midst of trials and tribulations. And don't raise your hands, but are you in the midst of trials and tribulations? If you're not, I have to ask, are you a normal person? <laughs> but the point is this. We all face them, but how do we respond to them? See, he's able to help you to respond in Christ-likeness. Now notice verses 14 and 15. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, likewise to part of the same, he took on human flesh, the incarnation, that through death he might destroy, that means to render inoperative, him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them, deliver them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We need to interpret this, I believe, in the broader context of soul salvation here in the text, for that's the application. At the cross, Jesus rendered Satan powerless, which means, don't miss this, that Satan cannot keep any saint in bondage to sin, and he cannot bring spiritual death upon you. He is powerless to do so. Now, if you are spiritually dead as a saint, for to be carnally minded is death, or let's say you are constantly being tripped up in your sin because sin has power over you, 
It's your own doing. You have submitted to the master of sin, which is powerless to rule over you. You can find that in Romans chapter 6. You have been freed from the power of sin. Glory, hallelujah. You know, a saint can choose spiritual death for himself. To be carnally minded is death. But Satan has no power to hold you there. You can never say the devil made you do anything. He has no power to keep you from victory. The same Jesus who rendered Satan powerless lives within you through his spirit. And he succors you. He helps you. He enables you. So if you're being defeated in your sinfulness, it's because you have chosen not to appropriate the provision he has given you. Thus far we have seen, point number one, Jesus is leading many sons to glory. Point number two, sons are being made perfect through suffering. And I have a third point, and you're all worried because it's just about lunchtime, but it's a very brief point. Will you trust me in it? (laughs) Point number three, and we'll close with this. Jesus is made perfect when sons are brought to glory through suffering. Now that statement might sound odd to you. After all, according to Hebrews 5 and verse 9, Jesus has already been made perfect. But look back at chapter 2, verse 10 once again. I want you to see something that really caught my attention. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This verse says it became him. That is, it is fitting that in leading many sons to glory, those sons through their sufferings would make perfect the prince of their salvation. Now what does this mean? We have to remember that to be made perfect is to be brought to completion. So listen carefully. How is Jesus brought to completion by leading many sons to glory? When his past sufferings are connected with our present sufferings, and thereby sons are being led to glory, the ultimate goal of Christ's suffering and death is reached. The kingdom of earth is reclaimed, and Christ has co-regents who can rule with him eternally. In that sense, he is made perfect. He is made complete when the sons are brought to glory to rule with him. Woo! That'll make a Baptocostal out of anybody. Now in closing, we're going to leave Hebrews 2 and we're going to go to 1 Peter 1. And my wife often accuses me of saying in closing several times before I actually close. But bear with me. 1 <laughs> Peter chapter 1, verse number 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul, soul salvation, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, there it is, the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. When the sufferings of Christ become our sufferings, that is, when we fellowship or participate in His sufferings and become conformable to His death, 
We enter into his joy, the joy of future co-ruling. And it says here in this text, the prophets of the Old Testament were perplexed. But not so much by the sufferings of Christ, but with the glory thereafter. They got only a little glimpse of it, but apparently they could not figure out how it all could come to be. But we know, because the book of Hebrews tells us, He is bringing many sons unto glory. And I say this. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. There's a condition. It's for those who love him. And this is one of those things. I close with this illustration. Before the fall, when Adam needed a co-regent, a bride, God opened up Adam's side and took a rib to make a completer for him. And so Adam referred to Eve as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Together they were complete. Without Eve, Adam was incomplete. Jesus, the second Adam, has a body too, known as the church. Those who have been redeemed by his blood In fulfillment of the type, Christ's bride will be taken from his body as Adam's bride was taken from his body. That bride, the bride of Jesus, is comprised of the many sons brought unto glory. And when that bride is presented to him at the judgment seat and after the judgment seat, Christ will be complete to rule as Adam was intended to rule. That, my friend, is what Hebrews 2.10 means. And I want to be one of those sons led to glory that comprises his bride. I know you do as well. And so here's what we must do. We must choose to enter into his sufferings by enduring our sufferings, doing so with his enabling help, but doing so out of joy, the joy that is set before us. And I close with a verse that I read earlier, Revelation 21, 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my huias, my mature son, the one who's led into glory, who rules with Jesus. Glory. Let's pray. Ah, Father, we revel in these truths. We say glory, hallelujah, praise to Jesus for all that he has accomplished and will accomplish. Lord, we recognize that he will accomplish these things whether we go along for the ride or not. But, oh, God, that we of all people who are talking about these things, that we would be prepared and ready to be your bride, ready to be a son unto glory, ready to rule and reign with you, that you might be glorified throughout eternity. We look forward to that day. Oh, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.